It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Now, I read this line for two reasons. This was the text that Reverend James Ramsey chose for his sermon on the death of Stonewall Jackson right after Stonewall Jackson's death. It describes Stonewall Jackson, but I read it because it also describes Oliver Cromwell and explains Oliver Cromwell. And that is the line in Psalm 91, 14b, the Lord says, I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. Now, the name of the funeral sermon for Stonewall Jackson by Ramsey, based on this verse, was, quote, True eminence founded on holiness. True eminence founded on holiness. What made Oliver Cromwell great? What made him such an exalted figure in the history of the Christian church? He was holy. God set him on high because Oliver Cromwell knew his name. And there was a great Reformed historian by the name of Merle Daubigny, who in 1847, in what I believe is the best biography of Oliver Cromwell, said that Cromwell was the greatest Christian since Martin Luther and John Calvin. Now, that was written in 1847. There have been a lot of great Christians since, but it may still be true. And you'll see something of it, hopefully, in the movie and then next week as we uh, talk more about Cromwell and tonight as well. All right, now let's go back to our history. We have gotten right to the edge of the Westminster Assembly. Parliament now has outlawed bishops. The church needs a government. Uh, There's a war between the king and his army and Parliament and his army. The people are siding with Parliament. Parliament recognizes, as well as the people recognize, that uh, in order to reform the church and state, the Parliament needs the guidance and direction of godly men who are knowledgeable in the Word of God. And so Parliament calls for an assembly of divines, with a small d, which is a word for, for theologians and preachers and teachers, of the best in the land to be in continual session to give direction and assistance and guidance and advice to the Parliament as it seeks to reconstruct both church and state. And uh, so the general, the uh, Westminster Assembly was called by Parliament. Let's see if I can find where I have my notes here. The Westminster Assembly was called and finally had its first meeting on July the 1st, 1643. That's a good date to commemorate. July the 1st, July the 1st. 1643, it met in Westminster Abbey in London, England, in Jerusalem Chamber. It had 1,163 sessions throughout those years until February the 22nd, 1649. By that time, it had completed its work of providing a confession of faith, larger and shorter catechism, uh, book of church order, and a directory of worship. After 1649, the Westminster Assembly continued to meet only as a group of examiners for ministerial candidates. So that if anybody wanted to come into ministry, they'd have to be examined by the Westminster Divines. And so the Westminster Assembly continued to meet until March the 25th, 1652, at which date Parliament was dissolved by Oliver Cromwell and his army. And, of course, since this was a creature of Parliament, when the Parliament was dissolved, the Westminster Assembly came to an end. So the dates for the Westminster Assembly are July the 1st, 1643, through February the 22nd, 1649. That's when they uh, discussed and, and, and produced theological and ecclesiastical documents. But then it proceeded, continued to meet, until March 1652 to examine candidates for the ministry. The Westminster Assembly was unique. Never before in the history of the church, and I believe not since then, 
have there been so many devoted, competent Christian scholars gathered together for so long a period of time to define so many crucial teachings of the faith so well? So wrote J. Adams. Hasn't been an assembly like this in the history of the Christian church to produce what they produced. If you know anything about the history of England, you'll know that the 17th century, the 1600s, is the most decisive century in English history. And the meeting of the Westminster Assembly is the most important event in the 17th century. Now you can see its place in the role of things. In the history of England, the decisive century was the 17th century, the 1600s. And the most decisive event of the 1600s was the meeting of the Westminster Assembly. When these Westminster divines met in Westminster Abbey, everybody expected all people of Britain to live in obedience to the Lord. And the task of those who were gathered was to provide a document that documents that would bring order and unity to the people, to end the political tyranny, the economic chaos, the social lawlessness. I want... Uh, you to listen now to an assessment of these men by Richard Baxter. Richard Baxter was a Presbyterian preacher, one of the best there ever has been. His uh, directory, he has a book called Christian Directory of something that's about this thick and this big and, and uh, is one of the greatest uh, books you can buy. But he was passed by. He was not chosen to meet at the Westminster Assembly, although he was a famous and great and extraordinary preacher and scholar at the time. He was not chosen. There wasn't any bitterness in him. And so he's an ideal person to hear a proper assessment of the men that met at the Westminster Assembly. Listen to Richard Baxter, who knew these men, who was not there, des describe them. The divines there congregated were men of eminent learning and godliness and ministerial abilities and fidelity. And not being worthy to be one of them myself... I may the more freely speak that truth which I know, even in the face of malice and envy, that as far as I am able to judge by the information of all history of that kind, and by other evidence left to us, the Christian world since the days of the apostles had never an official assembly of more excellent divines than this synod and the synod of Dort. Said in the history of the Christian church, there's never been an official assembly to match the extraordinary qualities and godliness of the men of the Westminster Assembly and of the Synod of Dort, which met in 1618 and 19, which we've already talked about. I want to read to you now the, the uh, words of a man named Witherspoon, not the great one, but another one, a Southern Presbyterian in the last century, uh, expressing his appreciation for the men of the Westminster Assembly and what they produced and the kind of men they were. He said, And so as we contemplate the lives and characters of these illustrious men, whose lot was cast in the midst of the storms of political and ecclesiastical revolution, who heroically bared their breasts to the tempest, receiving in full shock and hurling back in defiance the waves of despotic absolutism in the state and hierarchical oppression in the church, their majestic forms loom up before us in the thick of the conflict for the defense of the civil and religious liberties which we enjoy. And there is a majesty and a sublimity in the rugged grandeur of their natures that over us we uncover our heads with reverence before them. And our souls thrill with emotions of gratitude, admiration, and love as we remember that it was because they stood breast deep amidst the waves and maintain their position, inflexible and unawed, under all the fury of the tempest, that we are today in the midst of Presbyterianism, which under the soft sunlight of God's truth covers all its fair fields with verdure, bids the fragile fern unfold upon the barren cliffs its graceful fronds, and fills the world with the delicate aroma of its flowers, written in 1897. So you see how that ever since it met, these men cannot receive enough praise and God cannot receive enough praise because of them and because of what he did through them. Now, last week we ended in talking about the Solemn League and Covenant. You remember? Now, the Westminster Assembly first met what date? July the 1st, 1643. 
On September, in September 1643, another event took place. And that was the signing of the Solemn League and Covenant between England and Scotland. You remember the situation just by way of review. The Parliament had its army. King Charles had his army. The Parliament armies were losing battle after battle to the king. And the king was getting more and more support. And Parliament realized that if we're going to win this war against tyranny, we're going to need the military assistance of our Scottish Presbyterian brethren. So the Parliament of Great of England writes the Parliament of Scotland and the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland asking for assistance. And the Church of Scotland and Scotland itself with nothing to gain and everything to lose. Because remember, it had already established its freedom from tyranny. It was officially Presbyterian and Reformed. And now if it got back into the battle against Charles I and lost, it would lose all of its advantages. But Scotland, great Christian nation that it was, and compassionate nation that it was, agreed, praise God, to come to Parliament's assistance. Now, remember, the issues were similar, but there was a distinctive between them. England was fighting for the liberty of conscience, for civil liberty against a tyrant. Scotland's main concern was ecclesiastical liberty for the church from the state. They were always talking about the crown rights of King Jesus. Parliament knew in England that if we're going to bring Scotland in, this alliance between us has got to be a civil league as well as a religious covenant or else we're not going to get Scotland. And so Scotland said, we only make one demand of you. We'll join with you in a solemn league and covenant, a civil compact between our nations, and a solemn religious covenant with Almighty God, and, the, and we'll bring our armies and we'll spill our blood for you. And the only thing we ask of you, England, is that you simply be faithful to what you said you wanted. You said you wanted a reformed nation. You said you wanted a Reformed Church and a Presbyterian Church. You said you wanted it in print, and the Parliament had. And all Scotland said is, you just be faithful to what you want, and we'll come and help you. So you have the Great Solemn League and Covenant, which was an alliance of two nations. The Parliament of England signed it. The Parliament of Scotland signed it. The General Assembly of the Church of Scotland signed it. The Westminster Assembly signed it. Signed it. This was an official legal document between nations and churches. And I remember what it called for. It said, in essence, that these two nations bind themselves together to support each other for the preservation of the Reformed faith in the Church of Scotland in its doctrine, worship, discipline, and government against our common enemies, and for the reformation of the Church in the kingdoms of England and Ireland in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government according to the Word of God and the best example of the best Reformed churches in the world. So what this League and Covenant did was, was both nations committed themselves to the preservation of the Reformed faith in Scotland and committed themselves to use whatever force was necessary, moral and otherwise, for the Reformation, because you see the Church of England wasn't as far along as the, as the Church of Scotland, for the Reformation of the Church of England in four particular areas, in doctrine, worship, uh, government, and uh, what was the other here? Confession of Faith, former church government, directory of worship, and catechism. That they wanted a confession of faith that both, all three nations, Scotland, Ireland, and England, and the churches could confess and say, this is what we believe. They wanted a common catechism that could be taught in the schools to the young. They wanted a common Presbyterian church government in all the churches of uh, Scotland, Ireland, and England. And they wanted a common biblical liturgy based upon the regulative principle of whatever is commanded is required, whatever is forbidden is prohibited, and whatever is not uh, commanded is forbidden. They wanted a simple, unornate worship of God where everything that originated with man is excluded. Well, now, the, the uh, Westminster Assembly had been meeting since July. The Solemn League and Covenant was signed on September the 25th, 1643. So the Westminster Assembly had already been at work. Its original uh, objective was to go through the 39 Articles of the Church of England. And the 39 Articles was the, uh, the Reformed Confession of Faith of the Anglican Church. 39 distinct doctrines. You can still find it today. It's a great Reformed doc uh, document. 
And the responsibility that Parliament originally gave the Westminster Assembly was to vindicate and clarify the 39 Articles. There are people who are trying to read Arminianism in it, vindicate it, let them know that it's reformed. Clarify that it's distinctively reformed. Make this document even more biblical than it is. So these Westminster preachers and uh, fathers, about 150 of them in all, they're about from Scotland, England, Ireland. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about uh, some of the men who were there. Some of the descendants of these men are in our church, members of our church right now, uh, one descendant. And... Uh, uh, where was I? What was I saying? Do you remember what I was saying? Well, let's go back and start again. All right, so. So, they were on the 16th article of the 39 articles. They'd already gone through the first 16th and clarified them and vindicate them. And then the Solemn League and Covenant is signed and the Parliament says, All right, lay that aside. Forget all that. We're changing your direction. You're going to do something entirely different. We don't want you to try to vindicate and clarify the doctrines of the Church of England. We want you to write a brand new confession of faith, write a brand new catechism, write a brand new doc, a book of church order and church government, and write a brand new book of public worship. And so the impact was dramatic upon the work of the Westminster Assembly. Now, what was the immediate result? of the meeting of the Westminster Assembly from 1643 to 1649. The immediate result was several things. One, the completion of the Confession of Faith. Well, first of all, the completion of the Book of Church Order. Because you remember, having abolished Episcopal Church government, the Church of England had no government. And so the first and most immediate need was a church government. So the first thing they produced was a Presbyterian order of worship. Uh, I mean, a Presbyterian Book of Church Order. The next was the Presbyterian Book of Worship to get rid of the Anglo-Catholic liturgy and to go back to the Bible. Then they produced the Westminster Confession of Faith, 33 chapters dealing with the, with the fundamental doctrines of the Word of God. Then they produced a larger catechism, which had as its purpose extended, in-depth study of the Word of God for advanced uh, Christian education. And then the last document they produced was the shorter catechism uh, that was originally for children. And now it's taught in seminaries, uh, in some seminaries in this country. After the production of these articles, certain things, or as they were being produced, as a result of the sitting of the Westminster Assembly and the mood and the mindset that characterized England that gave birth to that assembly, several wonderful things happened. One, Archbishop Laud was executed, thereby ending the Anglo-Catholic oppression of the church. More importantly, King Charles I, the first king of England ever to be tried of treason by his, the people and executed and beheaded. Uh, because of the Westminster Assembly and the mindset and the worldview that dominated England that was represented in the Westminster Assembly. With the execution of King Charles I, which you get to see after a while, there was the end of tyranny in England and the end of the doctrine of the absolute right, divine right of kings. We remember the king said, Rex Lex. I am the law. I'm not only above the law, I am the law. And, of course, the Calvinist said, Lex Rex. The law is king, and everybody, including the king, is accountable to it. And ever since the Westminster Assembly and Oliver Cromwell, the English monarchy has never been the same. Never. Nor has the West. Prior to Oliver Cromwell, the kings and queens of England believed in absolute, the absolute monarchy, divine right of kings. Thereafter, you have a constitutional monarchy in Great Britain, and the great republican principles in the old sense of the word, not the partisan sense of the word today, those great old representative principles, uh, republican principles of a represented government, of a head of state elected by the people, uh, uh, that Oliver Cromwell so fiercely believed, which never fully took root in England because they never could get past their love for a monarch, finally get, uh, came to full bloom in the United States of America. And so the United States of America owes its existence as a nation to the work of Oliver Cromwell and the Westminster Assembly. The breaking down of the established tyrannical order that was so oppressive to the church and the reconstruction of a new order of church and state and society were the results of the work of the Westminster Assembly and of Oliver Cromwell. And the world's never been the same since that assembly. 
The Westminster Assembly and the Westminster Standards have had a long career of influencing church and state and culture all over the world. That book, The Westminster Confession of Faith, was of a major influence in the shaping of American life. July 4, 1776, the colonies declared their independence from, the, uh, from, the king, uh, from England because of the tyranny of Parliament over the colonies. But before the colonies declared their independence in July 4th, the county of Mecklenburg, North Carolina, had already declared its independence from the uh, from Parliament of England, and the colonies simply followed suit of Mecklenburg County, North Carolina. Now, why was it, you reckon, that Mecklenburg County, of all the various counties of the state, was the one county that was the first to declare its independence from England? Because there was a higher percentage of Presbyterians in Mecklenburg County than in any county in the United States. And they remember their old Scotch Covenanter and Puritan heritage. And so you have it still the motivating force, the Westminster Assembly, the worldview that comes out of it, still motivating people uh, over a hundred years later and eventually giving birth to this country and shaping American life. It's estimated that in 1776, three-fourths of the American people were significantly influenced by the Westminster Standards. Now, can you imagine? Now, the percentage is, I'm sure you can't, it won't even show up on a scale among Presbyterian churches. But three-fourths of the entire population, to one degree or another, were committed to the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms. And now, for three and a half centuries and longer, the Westminster Confession of Faith has had a major, unusually wide influence throughout the English-speaking world. England, Scotland, Ireland, United States, Canada, Australia, South Africa, and even among non-English-speaking nations of the world. In Arabic-speaking nations, Muslim nations, there are Presbyterian churches, many of whose leaders I taught in Cyprus and got to meet and saw and were great encouragements to me. These people had churches in Muslim dictatorships, Arabic-speaking countries based upon the Westminster Confession of Faith. Do you know in many of these Muslim countries like Iraq and Iran and Lebanon and uh, uh, Sudan and Egypt and alike, the only or the most significant Protestant witness is the Presbyterian Church. So that the Presbyterian Church in those lands is called the Evangelical Church. You've got the Greek Orthodox Church and you've got the Evangelical Church. There isn't any other church than the Evangelical Church. And the Evangelical Church is the Presbyterian Church. And so their, their doctrinal statement is the Westminster Confession of Faith in English. And I asked some of these Muslim-speaking Christians, uh, some of these Arabic-speaking Christians through an interpreter, how is it that you Arabic-speaking brothers have the English Westminster Confession as your statement of faith? They said because of a hundred years ago, the American Presbyterians came to this land with the Confession of Faith and converted our forefathers and built strong churches here. Old school, thoroughly reformed Presbyterians. And since the writing of the Confession of Faith, it's been translated into German, Latin, Gaelic, Hindustani, Urdu, Siamese, Portuguese, Spanish, Arabic, French, Persian, Korean, Japanese, Russian, just to name a few. Even those who are not adherents to the doctrine found in the Confession of Faith have been forced to admit that these standards are, quote, the ablest clearest and most comprehensive system of Christian doctrine ever framed. But after having said all that, the Westminster Assembly was a failure. It was a failure when you judge it according to its stated purpose for which it was convened. It was convened and called together by Parliament to standardize and unify the doctrine, worship, and discipline of the churches of Scotland, Ireland, and England. But it did not fulfill that purpose. 
after working hard for years from 1643 to the end of that decade, those Westminster fathers that were so involved were greatly disappointed that in the succeeding years this purpose was not achieved. The project failed to obtain its major stated goals. However, in God's wise providence, he had other purposes in mind. Judged by the providential work of God and the providential purposes of God, as they've worked out throughout the years, it's evident that God planned to achieve far more on a wider scale than its framers ever imagined. Well, what happened to the Westminster Divines after the assembly? At this point, we need to introduce Oliver Cromwell, and next week we'll talk about him a lot more. Oliver Cromwell lived from 1599 to 1658. He was a godly man, had some Stuart blood in his veins. In fact, when James VI of Scotland, uh, when Elizabeth I died and said that J James VI of Scotland was to succeed her on the throne of England, James VI and his family came from Scotland and on their way to London stayed at the home and were wined and dined at the home of a man who had his little nephew there with him, a little boy named Oliver Cromwell, who may have played with James I, little son Charles. And uh, he was raised in modest wealth in a Puritan home. His family were reformed. And uh, he eventually became a man of distinction and was elected to Parliament. While he was in Parliament, he, his leadership abilities began to shine, and in the battles with the king, he was eventually asked to be one of the commanding officers in the army of the Parliament. And on June the 14th, 1645, Oliver Cromwell defeated and cut to pieces the last field army of Charles I at a place called Nasby. That's why there's not too many monuments to, Char to, to Oliver Cromwell. In fact, if you want to see his, in England, if you want to see his death mask at uh, Warwick Castle, there are no signs. You just have to, stu you have to know where it is. There are no signs that say this way to Cromwell's death mask. Uh, because, as I said this morning, uh, Englishmen love their kings. Now, uh, and he killed one of their kings. But, outside Parliament, there is this majestic statue of Cromwell with a Bible and a sword. And so he defeated King Charles I's forces. The next year, Charles surrendered to a Scottish army and was turned over to the English Parliament. There were still some people in Scotland who were royalists. They still wanted Charles back on the, on the throne. So, in August 1648, Cromwell defeated an army of Scottish people supporting Charles I. And when he defeated that army, having defeated the king's army, that left his new model army supreme in England. Cromwell was a Puritan. He was not a Presbyterian. He favored the independents. He wasn't a Baptist. He was an independent. That is, he shared all the doctrines of the Presbyterians except... He did not believe that churches were organizationally connected together like Presbyterian churches believe, but that each congregation is independent from the others. In all the various other doctrines, he agreed. And remember, he also signed the Solemn League and Covenant, which was for the preservation of the Reformed Church in Scotland and the Reformation of the Church in England, according to the example of the best Reformed and Presbyterian churches of the day, including the Church of Scotland. He tolerated people who disagreed with him, however, as he set himself up as Lord Protector of England. There wasn't a king. Somebody had to be the head of state. Parliament was untrustworthy. He didn't want to be the head of state, but he put himself in that position. And as long as he ruled, the, the moderate Episcopalian Puritans had freedom. The Presbyterians had freedom. The Independents had freedom. What Baptists there were had freedom. There weren't many. First Baptist church in history didn't start until the early 1600s. But there was a time in which he had to expel the staunch and overbearing Presbyterians from Parliament at that point. And that's a good story in and of itself. In my opinion, they deserved to be expelled at that time because they wanted to restore the king. Charles I was tried for treason, condemned, and beheaded January the 30th, 1643. 
And between that time and 1651, Oliver Cromwell had put down all opposition against his protectorate, in Eng significant opposition, in England, Scotland, and Ireland. And as we said, because of what he did in the Westminster Assembly, he transformed the monarchy of England from an absolute monarchy by divine right to a constitutional monarchy. Cromwell sought to rule England by the word of God, godly Calvinist that he was. But favoring the independents who believed in a democratic form of government, a congregational form of government with no binding ties to other congregation, not being a Presbyterian, that believe, who believes in a, a, a unity of congregations and representative, not democratic government, Oliver Cromwell was not able to hold things together after his lifetime. And during his life, he was only able to hold things together by an authoritarian rule. He was the Lord, but there's, in my opinion, as we'll see, there's nothing else that could have been done. He was the Lord Protector of England. He wouldn't take the name King. They offered him the crown. He, and at one point he said in so many words, you crazy? What do you think all this is about? And so he simply took the name Lord Protector, which name had a good history because that was the name of the man that acted as king, the uncle of the young King Edward VI when he was a young child and succeeded his father, the great reformed king. And so he was Lord Protector of England until his death on September 3, 1658. Died, lived from 1599 to 1658. Now, I want to uh, read about his godliness. And proof of this man's extraordinary godliness is from his letters. I read from a book that is the most edifying histo uh, book, historical book that I've ever read. I've read it before, but since the trip to Idaho was so long, I read it again. And, I mean, this, for, uh, this is the most edifying biography of, that I've ever read by Merle Daubigny. I think we can get it for you at Sprinkle Publications called The Protector of Vindication. And it's the best book I know of on Oliver Cromwell. But what I want to do now is just the rest of the time, or a big chunk of the time, is to read to you from his letters so that you'll appreciate what kind of man this was. He wrote his children. He was a great father a godly Christian, and we learn a lot from these. First of all, let me read this assessment of him uh, by his peers. All who were about him bore testimony to his piety, his godliness. He had spent much time with God in prayer the night before the storming of a particular house. And he seldom fights in a battle without some text of Scripture to support him. Every day of his life, he retired to read the scriptures and to pray. Those who watched him narrowly relate that after having perused a chapter in the Bible, he was wont to prostrate himself with his face on the ground and with tears pour out his soul to God. How would you like to have a head of state like that? How would you like to have a dictator like that? Which is what he's been called ever since. Uh, listen, he writes his daughter. He says to his daughter, Dear heart, press on. Let not thy husband, let not anything cool thy affections for Christ. I hope your husband will be an occasion to inflame them. That which is best worthy of love in your husband is that of the image of Christ he bears. And this. Oh, this is a good one. Now, here he was doing, he and his uh, comrades were doing something he knew that was radical, the execution of the king of England. Never been done, never been tried, no king executed, having been found a treason. Knew it was a serious thing. He didn't do it lightly. It wasn't something he enjoyed. I want to read to you what preceded his decision and the decision of Parliament to execute Charles, the tyrant. One day, 1648... The, armor, the army leaders and Cromwell met at Windsor Castle. And there was somebody there who wrote about the meeting, an adjutant general by the name of Allen. He said, we met at Windsor Castle about the beginning of 48, and there we spent one day together in prayer, inquiring into the causes of that sad dispensation. 
coming to no further resolve that day, but that it was still our duty to seek. And on the next day we met again in the morning where many spake from the word of God and prayed. And then Lieutenant General Cromwell pressed us very earnestly to a thorough consideration of our actions in the army and of our ways, particularly as private Christians, to see if any sin could be found in us and what it was that, if possible, we might find it out and so remove the cause of such sad rebukes as were upon us at that time. And to this end, Cromwell added, let us consider when we could last say that the presence of the Lord was among us and rebukes and judgments were not as then upon us. We concluded the second day with agreeing to meet a third day, which accordingly we did. Now, they've spent two days in prayer and preaching. Now, here comes a third. Which accordingly we did and were led by a gracious hand of the Lord to find out the very steps by which we had departed from him and provoked him to depart from us. Which we found to be those cursed carnal conferences of our own conceited wisdom, our fears and lack of faith had prompted us the year before to entertain with the king and his party. And the Lord so accompanied this invitation by his spirit that it had a kindly effect like a word of his upon most of our hearts that were then present, which begot in us a great sense, a shame and loathing of ourselves for our iniquities and a justifying of the Lord as righteous in his proceedings against us. He led us not only to see our sin, but also our duty. And this so unanimously set with weight upon each heart that none was able hardly to speak a word to each other for bitter weeping, partly in the sense and shame of our iniquities, of our unbelief, base fear of men and carnal consultations with our own wisdom and not with the word of the Lord. And yet we were also helped with fear and trembling to rejoice in the Lord, who no sooner brought us to his feet, but he did direct our steps, and we were led to a clear agreement amongst ourselves. That it was the duty of our day with the forces we had to go out and fight against our potent enemies with an humble confidence in the name of the Lord only. And we were also enabled then, after serious seeking the Lord's face, to come to a clear and joint resolution that it was our duty to call Charles Stewart, that man of blood, to an account for that blood he had shed and mischief he had done to his utmost against the Lord's cause and people in this poor nation. Three days of prayer led to the execution of the king. And this. He's writing to somebody about his son. He wants him to take care of his son. He lost a son in the war. Had three sons. Lost a son. His son, one of his sons, Richard, followed him, but I believe he really wanted his son, Henry, to follow him. But anyway, he says this in the letter. I beg your prayers. I desire you to call upon my son to mind the things of God more and more. Alas, what profit is there in the things of this world, except they be enjoyed in Christ? They are snares. I wish he may enjoy his wife also, and she him, as I wish I may enjoy them both. And here's another letter to his son. Seek the Lord and his face continually. Let this be the business of your life and strength. You cannot find nor behold the face of God but in Christ. Therefore, labor to know God in Christ, which the scripture makes to be the sum of all. And here's another. You will think perhaps I need not advise you to love your wife. The Lord teach you how to do it. He's talking to his son. The Lord teach you how to do it. Though marriage be no instituted sacrament, yet where the undefiled bed is and love, this union aptly resembles that of Christ and his church. If you can truly love your wife, what love doth Christ bear to his church and every poor soul therein who gave himself for it and to it? And then in a letter to his brother, he asks about his brother's children. And Cromwell says, I should be glad to hear about that little brat. Oh, how good it is to close with Christ betimes. There's nothing else worth looking for. I beseech you, call upon him. I hope you will discharge my duty in your own love. And you see how I'm employed. I need pity. I know what I feel. Great place and business in the world is not worth the looking after. I should have no comfort in mine, but that my hope is in the Lord's presence. 
I have not sought these things. Truly, I have been called unto them by the Lord, and therefore am not without some assurance that he will enable his poor worm and weak servant to do his will. 142. He writes his wife, Elizabeth. I praise the Lord I am increased in strength in my outward man. But that will not satisfy me except I get a heart to love and serve my heavenly Father better. And get more of the light of his countenance, which is better than life, and more power over my corruptions. In these hopes I wait, and am not without expectation of a gracious return. Pray for me, truly I do daily for thee and the dear family, and God Almighty bless you all with his spiritual blessings. And these are the words of a man that has been slandered and ridiculed throughout history like no other head of state. 155. Here he writes uh, the governors of the land. And he says, I beseech you, have a care of the whole flock. Love the sheep, love the lambs, love all, tender all, cherish and countenance all, and all things that are good. I think I need not advise, much less press you, to endeavor the promoting of the gospel, to encourage the ministry. Such a ministry and such ministers as be faithful to the land and upon whom the true character is. He loved preaching. In fact, amazing thing about Cromwell, which we'll see more next week, is, is during his reign he had to go into Scotland and squelch uh, another uprising among Scottish people to try to put a Stuart back on the throne. And so he, uh, much to his displeasure, has to fight them and put them down, and then he establishes his order in Scotland. But while he's there over Sundays, he goes to Scottish Presbyterian churches. Doesn't go, to, go back to English churches. He loves to hear these Scottish Presbyterians whom he just whipped. He loves to hear these Scottish Presbyterians preach. He didn't whip too many Presbyterians, however. Those were... Uh, Royalists more than anything else. Uh, let's see. Here's another one. 176. I want you to get to know this guy before you watch him on television. Now, I want you to listen to his theology. Listen how deep this guy understood the scriptures. Dear Charles, he writes to, uh, I think it's his son-in-law. Dear Charles, my dear love to thee and to my dear Biddy who is a joy to my heart for what I hear of the Lord in her. Bid her be cheerful and rejoice in the Lord once and again. If she knows the covenant of grace, she cannot but be cheerful. For that transaction is without her, that is outside of her, objective, not subjective. Uh, sure and steadfast between the Father and the Mediator in His blood. Therefore, leaning upon the Son or looking to Him, thirsting after Him and embracing Him, we're His seed and the covenant is sure to all the seed. The compact is for the seed. God is bound in faithfulness to Christ and in Him to us. The covenant is without us, objective to us, a transaction between God and Christ. Look up to it. God engages in it to pardon us, to write His law in our hearts, to, to plant His fear so that we shall never depart from Him. Now he's... Uh, at the height of his power, and uh, he's encouraging, and I use that word sort of uh, lightly, he is, as Lord Protector, he's encouraging somebody. I mean, you know, a common person can encourage another common person, but when the Lord Protector encourages you, you know, it's a little more than encouragement. So he's uh, encouraging this Episcopal preacher. Listen to his encouragement. Lest the soldiers, his own soldiers, who were a bunch of fire-breathing Puritans, I mean, this was the godliest army ever in existence, never lost a battle. All of the Catholic nations of Europe thought sure that Cromwell was going to march his armies into those countries and put down uh, Roman Catholicism. He knew they feared him, and so he took advantage of their fear and caused many of these Roman Catholic countries to quit persecuting Protestants just by uh, intimating, if you don't quit uh, fooling with these guys, you've got the model army to deal with. He even told them at one time, he said, how would you like for my navy to come around the Rock of Gibraltar and there to be Puritan troops in Rome? He died too soon. And now here's a letter encouraging this Episcopal priest. 
lest the soldiers should in any tumultuous or disorderly way attempt the reformation of the cathedral, I require you to forbear altogether your choir service so unedifying and offensive, i.e. your liturgy, you know, where, they do, where liturgies are sung. He said, now, I'm not saying they're going to do this. But if I were you, he's saying, if I'd advise you to change your liturgy because you don't want this bunch of Puritan soldiers messing up your church building. I advise you to catechize and read and expound the scripture to the people. Not doubting, but the parliament, with the advice of the assembly of divines, will direct you farther. And I desire your sermons, too, to be more frequent. Now, if you've got to have a dictator, <laughs> this is the kind of dictator you want. All right, 240. I would be encouraged by such a letter, I can tell you. Now, he, later in life, they've asked him to be the king of England. He, he, he refuses the crown. And he's rehearsing some of the motives he had for the choices. Like, for instance, he offended a lot of the, of the uh, princes and nobles of the land uh, who, in earlier days, were given commanding positions in the army simply by virtue of the fact that they were nobles and men of state and means and wealth and title. And so as a result, the parliament's army failed as long as it maintained that practice. And so... Uh, Oliver Cromwell comes along and says, forget all that. I'm going out after England, and I'm going to enlist only godly men who fear God for this army. And if you're not godly men and you don't fear the Lord, you're not going to serve in this army. All right, listen. I raise such men as had the fear of God before them. And from that day forward, I must say to you, they were never beaten. And whenever they were engaged against the enemy, they won continually. And truly, this is a matter of praise to God. And it has some instruction in it to our own men who are religious and godly. And so many of them as are peaceably and honestly and quietly disposed to live within rules of government and will be subject to those gospel rules of obeying magistrates. I reckon no godliness without that circle of men. There are still such men in this nation, godly men of the same spirit, men that will not be, be beaten down by a worldly or carnal spirit while they keep their integrity. Hope I can make it through this part. Now, this is, he's dying. And uh, he's 59. His health gradually declined. He was sinking under the weight of care and fatigue, and England was pressing on him and killing him. In the process, he had another tragedy. His favorite daughter died while he was dying. And during the 14 days or so that she was dying, he never left her bedside, though he himself was dying. August the 6th, she died. His heart was crushed. He soon found the Christian's consolation. Having withdrawn to his room, he called for his Bible and desired a godly person there present to read to him a passage from the fourth chapter of the Epistle of the Philippians. I have learnt in whatever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and how to abound. After these verses were read, the afflicted parent Cromwell remarked, This very scripture once saved my life when my eldest son died, which went as a dagger to my heart. Indeed it did. After this, the bereaved father began to read the 11th and 12th verses on St. Paul's contentment and submission to the will of God in all conditions of life. It's true, said he. It's true. Paul, you have learnt this and attained to this measure of grace. But what shall I do? Ah, poor creature. It's a hard lesson for me to take out. I find it so. The afflicted ruler, like Rachel weeping for her children, refused to be comforted because they were not read on to the 13th verse where Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. These words began to reanimate his faith. Christ's omnipotence was felt in his soul. His heart found consolation and he said to himself, yes, I feel it, I see it. He was Paul's Christ and he's my Christ too.
time and again in the last days of his life when he'd come to, he, would, he was talking about spiritual things. The sick man, tortured by fever, spoke much of the covenant between God and his people. He saw on the one hand the covenant of works, but on the other he hailed with rapture the saving covenant of grace while he's dying. There were two, two covenants, but put into one before the foundation of the world. Imagine thinking about things about these things while you're dying. You had to be thinking about them throughout your life. It's a holy and true, it's holy and true, it's holy and true, the mediator of the covenant. The covenant is but one. Faith in the covenant is my only support. And if I do not believe, he abides faithful. And his wife and children stood weeping around his bed. He said to them, love not this world. I leave you the covenant to feed on. Then he said, Lord, thou knowest if I desire to live, it is to show forth thy praise and declare thy works. Another time he was heard mourning, moaning, is there none that says who will deliver me from the peril? Man can do nothing. God can do what he will. And then he goes on like this until a hurricane comes. Literally a hurricane hits London on August the 30th. And the same night, the great man dies. But not before he makes this prayer. And there were people there listening to his prayer. Now, I want you to notice what he's thinking about and who he's praying for and how he still has his people on his heart. The seconds before he dies, he made this prayer. Lord, though I'm a miserable and wretched creature, I am in covenant with thee through grace. And I may, I will come to thee for thy people. Thou hast made me, though very unworthy, a mean instrument to do them some good and thee service. And many of them have set too high value upon me, though the others wish and would be glad of my death. Lord, however thou dispose of me, continue and go on to do good for them. Pardon thy foolish people. Forgive their sins and do not forsake them, but love and bless them. Give them consistency of judgment, one heart and mutual love. And go on to deliver them and with the work of reformation and make the name of Christ glorious in the world. Teach those who look too much on thy instruments to depend more upon thyself. Pardon such as desire to trample upon the dust of a poor worm, for they are thy people too. And pardon the folly of this short prayer. And give me rest for Jesus Christ's sake, to whom with thee and thy Holy Spirit be all honor, glory, now and forever. Amen. He didn't die that day. There was another day. He said more great things we don't have time to read. But on September the 3rd, 1658, at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, he died. We'll talk more about him next week. And now with this background, you will uh, see a movie about this man. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the Westminster Assembly. We thank you for Oliver Cromwell. We thank you for what you've given us through them. Help us to be faithful to that heritage. For Christ's sake, amen. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.